Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Daniel Claude will join us to discuss koalas. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, koalas. How much exactly do we know about their natural history and their uncertain future? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Danielle Claude. Dr. Claude is an award-winning Australian nonfiction writer. Her books have been turned into television documentaries and even inspired a perfume. She studies psychology and politics at university and has a doctorate in zoology. Road scholar, zookeeper, and scientific interpreter, she has written numerous books that have won awards, such as the Victorian Premier's Nonfiction Prize, and been shortlisted for the Children's Book Council Awards. She has penned the new book, Koala, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future. Dr. Claude, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, there's certainly a great book that you put together here. We'll take a look at the natural history of koalas and their futures. Like, I'm curious why you decided to put the book together. Well, I guess really it was recent bushfires in Australia. You know, a couple of years ago, there were really big bushfires down the east coast of Australia, and there was a lot of concern about how koalas were being impacted by those fires. And I'm sure we've also seen the footage of burnt and injured koalas being cared for. Also, we had bushfires close to where I live on the south coast and including in the park nearby. And and we have a lot of koalas where I live. So that's raised my concerns about how they were going and how they were coping with these new threats and just to find out a little bit more about them. What are they like as animals and how do they interact with people in the environment? Yeah, well, it's true that most Australians haven't seen koalas up close in the wild either. So um, we mostly see koalas in zoos and on the East Coast in particular, they're they're quite rare and, and hard to find. But I'm lucky I happen to live in a very dense population of koalas, so we see them a little bit more frequently here. They're really quite amiable animals. You don't see them a lot, just occasionally crossing the road or up a tree. Sometimes they come down into people's gardens and walk across the lawn. Or, or try and drink out of the swimming pool or something like that. But they're generally pretty good-natured animals. In the breeding season, they're quite noisy. There's a lot of bellowing and grunting and squealing going on in the trees. But other than that, they keep to themselves pretty much. Are they, in fact, quite friendly creatures then? Yeah, they're not They're not unfriendly. They're, they're not particularly... They'd prefer to keep their distance from humans. They, they do, you know, usually head for the trees or keep away, but they're not aggressive animals. They're mild-tempered animals as a rule. You certainly don't want to get in a fight with one. They, they are quite well-armed. They have very large, sharp claws, and they, they can certainly bite. Um, but as a rule, they're fairly amiable animals. So, so I guess that adds to their charm. They're, they're quite interested in watching what's going on in the world. So, you know, they see them up a tree. They'll they'll certainly stay out of reach, but they'll often keep an eye on you and see what you're up to. So, you know, they're quite engaging in that sense. 
The fauna in Australia have a very unique and interesting natural history that uh, you go into. And can tell us a little bit about how these animals came to be. Yeah, well, I mean, koalas are marsupials, so they belong to, you know, that particular, particularly characteristic group of animals that Australia has an awful lot of. Over 250 different species of marsupials in Australia. It's not the only place with marsupials. Of course, you do have them in the Americas, in in South America in particular. One species has made it up into the Northern Hemisphere. That's the Virginia row possum. But we have a really wide range of them in Australia, the pouched animals, and and that's their most characteristic trait, I guess, is that they give birth to tiny little jelly bean young that crawl up through the mother's fur and into a pouch where they stay for another few weeks, months, until they are big enough to emerge at sort of much the same stage of development as humans and other placental or eutherian mammals would give birth. So it, that's a very characteristic thing about them. Anybody who's watched those nature videos of this process marvels at how such a reproductive system evolved. Yeah, well, I mean, um, as a mother, I'd say it sounds like a pretty good system to me. Um, very handy having your own pouch to pop your pop your infant back in and carry it around. The superior model for sure. <laughs> Well, I see a lot of uh, different species and subspecies of them that Australia. Yeah, the koala is, they did used to be uh, several different species of koala. So we've got fossil records of prehistoric koalas that were ranged inside from small possum-sized animals up to a giant koala, which was three times the size of the one we have now. But today we now just have the one species of koala. So it's, it's all on its own. And we used to think that there were three subspecies of koala in Australia but in actual fact they're all the same species they just do vary a little bit so the ones in the north are smaller and with thinner fur because it's it's warmer in the north here and in the south we have the larger thicker coated koalas because they have to cope with the colder winters they all have the same type of diet variations in terms of their habitats or lifestyles? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because we do tend to think of them all being the same and we tend to think of eucalypts all being the same as well. But of course, there's 900 species of eucalypts in Australia and from a koala's perspective, they're all quite different. Particularly, the eucalypts have a very complex structure, so they're hard to digest like a lot of plant material and they also have a lot of toxins and those two things are, are variable depending on the species. So koalas, although they seem to be quite, they, although they seem to specialise in eucalypts, they are also very particular about which eucalypts they can eat. So each individual koala will only eat between three and ten species of, of eucalypt tree. And they're very particular about which, which trees they will eat from. They won't just eat from any tree of that species. It depends where it grows, how lush it is, you know, how well watered it is, how fertile the soil is. And it'll also depend on what sort of leaves they are. So whether they're young leaves or old leaves, what part of the tree they're from. So they're incredibly particular about where they eat. So they, they need a very large forest area to support a koala. So each koala needs a forest the size of a, an average sports field to provide enough food for it. So, so this makes koalas really expensive and difficult to keep in captivity because they have to be provided with this really wide range of trees of a very particular kind. And it also makes them quite variable in their requirements and their behaviour in different eucalypt forests across Australia. 
Can they be kept cohabitating with other animals fairly readily? Yeah, I'm just trying to think. In zoos, they're typically kept on their own, but there wouldn't be any reason why you couldn't keep them probably with other animals. It depends. You know, how zoos keep animals, it's very much up to the individual animals and you'd have to see how they go. But yeah, they, they generally don't have much trouble getting on with other things. I mean, with such a large space requirement, gather that they don't really interact very much. No, that's right. They're generally regarded as social animals, although I think that it's it's not so much that they don't like each other's company. It's more to do with their food supply. They're, they're kept apart by the requirements of their food. So we find that when they live in captivity, they can often be quite social. You'll often see them, you know, sitting in pairs intentionally sitting together they don't they're not animals that keep to the opposite sides of their enclosure necessarily so they can be quite social but because they have such particular food requirements in most of the forests they are a long distance away they do have some issues in the south southern forests there are problems with overcrowding so the forests because they're so abundant here you can sometimes find three or four in the one tree but those trees will also be suffering from overbrowsing and and they have been known to kill the trees they feed on if they're in those overcrowded conditions so you know it's not really clear why that happens and um, whether that's to do with the forest being fragmented and the lack of habitat for them to disperse into they really are very fascinating animals. In researching them and in discovering a lot about their natural history, was there anything that particularly surprised you in terms of their thing? Yeah, sure. One thing that really surprised me, well, there was a lot of things that surprised me. Honestly, I was really surprised by how complicated koalas were. I wasn't expecting that to be such a such a complicated story. But I think the thing that really struck me was the relationship between koalas and water. So we tend to think of most Australian animals and eucalypt trees, for that matter, as being very drought-adapted. And the name koala comes from a, a Darak word meaning does not drink. So, you know, they're renowned for their capacity to go without water. But they do, of course, get lots of water from the trees that they eat. And they certainly do drink water. We've seen, you know, you will see pictures of them being given water by firefighters and things like that. But more important than that, I think, is the long evolutionary history and association of koalas with the forest. So their fossils are always found in swampy forests of the past, of the, of the long-distant past. They currently prefer trees that typically grow in wetter forests. So they, their favourite trees are things like river red gums or swamp mahogany. Those names tell you something about the nature of the trees. We find them preferentially live in forests that are growing along creek lines and river lines. We know that those particular forests support a much bigger biodiversity of mammals than the surrounding forests. So they're like the nurseries of the ecosystem. And, and they're associated with, they do well in wet seasons and disappear in dry seasons. So they're closely associated with standing water dams and, and lakes and things like that. So, so surprisingly, they're quite dependent on that that you know presence of water in the habitat and and I think that gives us some clues for how we need to care for them and and in particular protect those riverine forests 
How has their survival changed? You know, isolated for quite some time and then there are more settlers and then encroachments into their, their space by human populations. How is this changing as the dynamics of their survival? Yeah, I mean, koalas do seem to be a fairly resilient and robust species. They've coped with, they've had two major near extinction events in their history. So they suffered a, a major population contraction with the megafaunal extinction at the last ice age. So when a lot of megafauna species went extinct, they bounced back from that. And they have suffered a second one when they were hunted by humans for fur at the end of, you know, the 1800s, early 90s. 1900s. So that also it wiped them out in the, the South Coast populations. And they have recovered from that now to be in quite healthy, big populations on the South Coast now. So, so that's a kind of interesting past for them. But nonetheless, the continuing fragmentation of the forests on the East Coast, the continued logging of the forests. So we still have native logging. We still have large land clearance activity going on on the East Coast in particular. And so human development, the cities are growing. That encroaches on prime koala habitat, particularly along those river systems I mentioned. So all of those factors are really putting a lot of pressure on the koalas on the East Coast. And I think that's also exacerbated by, you know, they've got a couple of disease epidemics going on, chlamydia and koala retrovirus, which is causing huge problems. So so they're under a lot of pressure. And when you add to that the impact of the changing climate and bushfires, they are struggling in those areas. And, and that's a real cause for concern. The uncertain future that koalas face. I mean, what is it that humans can do? Are there efforts underway to see that uh, they avoid any pitfalls ahead? Yeah, I, th I think like for a lot of species, the major issue is habitat protection. And we do have quite a bad track record of protecting habitat for species. I think we do need to be looking more carefully at how we're caring for forests and what our impact is. I know, for example, that, you know, with native logging, Often it's thought that those that logging process is sustainable and the forests, you know, they, they still the forests come back or keep growing, but they actually change the nature of the forest. So they're actually promoting more highly flammable and more toxic eucalypts that aren't suitable for eating by a lot of species. So we need to have more careful protection around that. And we also need to be looking at how we build our own homes. I think we all could do with looking at ways that we can make our own homes we can that we can share them with wildlife and and looking at ways of improving biodiversity in all our spaces where we live and um, we could all do with more natural ecosystems around us i think that would make a, a better world for humans as well as for the koalas and other animals people picking up the book what would you like them really to take home regarding the koala i think just i think just you know really i just want to share my passion for the natural world I think it's a good example of a species, you know, that a lot of us take for granted. You know, we don't think of it much more than a, a pretty face on a postcard, but there's so much, so much fascinating stories behind the, behind the face. And yeah, it's really worth getting to know them better. We were just talking with Dr. Danielle Claude, her new book, Koala, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future. Dr. Claude, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much for having me. 
And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Thank you.